Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Powerful city in the world. A new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And around the clock on our podcast, free of charge when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter. Also Instagram, same handle, at Guy Benson Show. My personal handle on those platforms, at Guy P. Benson. I'm political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on tonight with Kennedy, my good friend, in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern that's on Fox Business Network. On set, one-on-one, should be fun. Hope to see you there. On the radio, here's your lineup today. Carl Rove, the architect, joining us later on this hour. Dagan McDowell here in studio. When we're in New York, we like to see some folks face-to-face when possible. Dagan will be here. She's got a brand-new show debuting next week on Fox Business, leading into Kennedy, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern. That's this coming Monday. She and Sean Duffy together the bottom line. So we'll ask her about that. Looking forward to it. And then Janice Dean, another one of our good friends here. I am the storm. That's her new book out yesterday. We'll talk to her about that and much more. Probably dogs. If I know Janice, that's all coming up. Now, I want to bring you a story out of the gate that I think might become a bigger national controversy in the days to come. Maybe I'm wrong, but this has the ingredients of being a media freakout. And so I want to bring it to you here first with the assistance of other people who have really done the legwork. Let me bring you some background first. This is from the New York Times, published over the summer. This was in August. The New York Times reported on a new project by the College Board. And what they were up to. And here's what the Times reported a few months ago. Quote, the college board is jumping into the fray over how to teach history and specifically the history of race in the United States with a new advanced placement course and exam on African-American studies that will be tried out in about 60 high schools this fall. So the trial has been underway early this school year. So the College Board is kind of like this hugely influential organization. Advanced placement courses and tests, AP, big thing. And I'm thinking back to high school, the AP classes that I took, the AP exams that I took to try to earn college credit early, right, all of that. That's what we're talking about here, African-American studies. Brand new pilot program. And it was being test-driven in a few dozen schools across the country this year. 
Now, this is interesting. Even at the time they reported this, the College Board has declined to release a sample syllabus or any other content for the course or to name the 60 schools or to say what states they were located in. If all goes well, the full AP course will be available to all high schools that want it in the 2024-2025 school year. So that secrecy, I think, already for some people might raise red flags. So they're going to introduce this new AP curriculum, brand new. They're going to try it out a few places, but we won't tell you where. We won't tell you what it will entail. No details at all. Now, in that same story, back in August, the New York Times quoted a man named Dr. Henry Louis Gates, which might ring a bell if you're a political obsessive and have been following American politics for a while. Henry Louis Gates, you remember the beer summit with Barack Obama and the cop in Cambridge, Massachusetts? There was a big miscommunication, I guess, at Professor Gates' house, and you might recall. That was him. So he was quoted in this story talking about what might be in the curriculum, just sort of spitballing. Quote, with the caveat that the course is still in development and that he only plays an advisory role in determining its content, so he clearly has some inside knowledge. Dr. Gates said he was, quote, sincerely hoping that the course would not ignore teaching about controversial subjects like critical race theory or the 1619 Project. The story says there could, for example, quote, be a course on Marxist approaches to race, Dr. Gates said, adding, quote, and most certainly I would imagine something on critical race theory and maybe something on the 1619 project. Now, he said they weren't going to advocate teaching Marxism or CRT or 1619 project as like the analytical framework that the students needed to adopt, but they would cover it as a controversy within the realm of under the syllabus. That's what he was at least telegraphing might be the case. I would point out, if you didn't know, the 1619 Project is this New York Times project that attempts to rewrite American history, saying that the true American founding was in 1619. It's through the prism of slavery. It was widely pilloried by historians, even liberal historians, saying that it was inaccurate, unbalanced, unfair, And, of course, it was award-winning for those reasons because it's extremely hyper-woke. And here is Professor Gates saying in his advisory role that he sincerely hopes critical race theory and 1619 Project will be part of this AP course when it is unveiled publicly because they've been very, very, very tight-lipped about any of it until, I guess, they're ready to get the show on the road broadly across the country. So here's the update. That's the background from the summer. The update is that Stanley Kurtz, writing at National Review, is explaining and is reporting why the state of Florida, under Governor Ron DeSantis, has already rejected this course. This project, this curriculum, the state of Florida said this will not be accepted in our state. In the letter that they wrote to this effect from the Florida Department of Education and the Office of Articulation, the officials write, quote, as presented, 
The content of this course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. The letter notes that, quote, in the future, should the college board be willing to come back to the table with lawful, historically accurate content, the Department of Education will always be willing to reopen the discussion. Stanley Kurtz writes, in short, DeSantis has decided that this AP African-American Studies project does in fact violate Florida's Stop Woke Act by attempting to persuade students of at least some tenets of CRT. So Team DeSantis has looked at this. Almost no one else has gotten a look at it, right? It's been shrouded in secrecy and mystery. But you know who has seen it, in addition to DeSantis and some of these other decision makers? Stanley Kurtz. Stanley Kurtz got a copy of the curriculum, and he reported about it a few months ago. It didn't get a lot of attention. I bet you it will get more attention now that DeSantis has axed it in Florida. Because anything DeSantis does gets attention. He picks his fights. In this case, he didn't really pick it. But he wages his fights strategically. Stanley Kurtz, having reviewed the curriculum, says the decision by Florida and its governor was, quote, bold and unprecedented and also, quote, entirely justified. He writes, I attained... I should say I obtained a copy and wrote about this curriculum in September. This is Kurtz. I argued that APAAS, which is this curriculum, proselytizes for a socialist transformation of the United States and directly runs afoul of new state laws barring CRT. He says overall the readings in the final quarter of the curriculum the quarter chiefly devoted to ideological controversies rather than to history, per se, are extraordinarily one-sided. They promote leftist radicalism with virtually no readings providing even a classically liberal point of view, much less some form of conservatism. So, surprise, surprise. This is the allegation from someone who's actually seen it. Kurtz reporting this at National Review. Later in his piece... He writes, then there's the promotion of socialism. And he quotes a few different readings and authors that are required reading. He says the overall course load has a neo-Marxist thrust, using his term. One of the required authors, his writings on African-American studies explicitly call for the field to reject traditional concepts of disciplinary neutrality and adopt openly anti-capitalist radical advocacy instead. So you can go and read Stanley Kurtz's article from September, getting into all of this in detail. And I think it might get a lot more attention now, more eyeballs on it, because of what Governor DeSantis in Florida has decided, which is this is not acceptable under Florida law. This is not going to be approved for AP classes or credit in the state of Florida. Stanley Kurtz making this point, and I think this is an important one, the college board's decision to keep this curriculum secret is indefensible, at least during a 2014 controversy over AP U.S. history changes. Troubling though that was, the curriculum was public. This, of course, is why the college board is resorting to secrecy now. It is trying to get states to approve the curriculum for high school, before there's even a chance of informed public debate. So think on this. 
what the college board has done is in secret put together an African-American studies curriculum, which on its face I have no objection to. It's an important part of our history. Why not? We teach the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's different than indoctrination or CRT or historical inaccuracies like the twenty or the uh, 1619 Project. They are, while hiding all of that from public view, no information, no example curriculum, no list of readings. They won't even reveal where the pilot program is in those 60 high schools around the country. While they are not sharing anything publicly, they are actively, simultaneously trying to get states to approve this mystery product in advance. As Kurt says, with very little chance of an informed public debate because we're going like third hand off of what someone was leaked. He goes on to write, for the college board to keep the curriculum secret while asking states to approve the course for high school and college credit is indefensible. This secrecy validates longstanding concerns about the college board's acting as a de facto unelected national school board. Then there's also, to me, it seems like there's an element of a setup here. I think the bet is let's create a stacked, loaded, slanted curriculum of African-American studies and then dare anyone to oppose it. Because who wants to be against that? Like, oh, no, we don't want African-American studies. Oh, okay, you're a racist, right? That's, That's the playbook. That's the playbook that they're deploying sort of in advance here. And maybe they were betting that no one would actually want to take the risk, but DeSantis has decided we're going to do this. We're going to have the fight. Stanley Kurtz writing that this tactic is nefarious but politically clever. What governor, what leader wants to be attacked for rejecting a course in African-American studies? It takes guts to say no to a course that looks benign on the surface but is in fact filled with CRT and propaganda. DeSantis, he writes, has got guts. So the headlines write themselves for these people who already hate DeSantis and they attack him for everything, right or wrong. DeSantis rejects African-American history, right? That will be the headline, and you might get a few quotes defending DeSantis in like paragraph 16, but they're going to want to put this out there. It's just an easy, turnkey, lazy journalism opportunity to slam DeSantis. I would be surprised if they pass it up. So I wanted you to know some of the actual context if and when that arrives. One more point. This is not about college students who are adults. This is not about graduate students. This is about teenagers in high school. Having an open discussion about what is being taught, what is appropriate and not, what is accurate, what is fair, That should be something that we can agree on. I think they are circumventing that for a reason, the reason being politics. I haven't seen the curriculum. I can't vouch for or against it myself. I will say that DeSantis making this decision, plus the secrecy of it, plus Stanley Kurtz reporting on it, those are significant data points, at least in my mind, to raise a few concerns about this at the very least. So this is something we will keep an eye on here on The Guy Benson Show. Just getting started. It is Wednesday here in New York. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
The Guy Benson Show. More next. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. The White House says Republicans are faking outrage on this issue. Why shouldn't Americans be outraged about classified documents being found in a garage? Look, and I think I've been very clear about this. We have answered questions on this at this podium. You've heard, as Phil was saying twice from the president, talk about this. He said that he didn't know, right? He said that he was surprised, and he said that he takes classified information and documents very, very seriously. We heard directly from the president on this issue. I'm Guy Benson. That was Corrine Jean-Pierre yesterday. Just saying again, he just takes the, uh, takes that classification issue very, very seriously, except for what, the five different troves of classified material that he had in like closets and garage that weren't allowed to be there under the law? Like, if this is his version of taking things very seriously, I'd hate to see what he doesn't take seriously. He was just surprised. I made this point on special report last night. Was he surprised every time? Like, surprised at the first discovery and the second and then again the third and the fourth and then the fifth. It's a lot of surprise face from the president who's just, they're treating him like he's a bystander watching this happen to him. Like, just, you know, passive victim as opposed to the president and someone who clearly, it would seem, had some role in this. And just just nothing there from Corinne Jean-Pierre. Nothing of any use, really, at any point on this controversy or many others, to be quite frank. Mark Thiessen on Special Report last night, he and I were both on the panel. He was very blunt about her performance in this and beyond cut two. She is so bad at her job. I mean, this is constantly the worst White House press secretary I've ever seen in my lifetime. She's terrible. Uh, to say, well, people are also concerned about the economy. This, they just spent months telling us that Donald Trump was the most irresponsible person in the world for having classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And it, they, the New York Times literally made a 3D model where you can go to the New York Times webpage and show search where the documents were and how close they were to visitors. And now they're dismissing it that there were documents in Joe Biden's, uh, Joe Biden's garage. Not just Joe Biden's garage, the Penn Biden Center hosted international students, had classes. It was, it was Tony Blinken's uh, office in the interregnum during the Trump years. Did he have any foreign visitors there. We need to get to the bottom of this, and they need to take this seriously. Well, they take it very, very seriously, they tell us, except their actions say something else. That's a harsh assessment of KJP. Kind of hard to argue with it. She's not really great at the job, but hey, she's making history. The Guy Benson Show back with Carl Rove next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. Let's check in now with Carl Rove, former deputy chief of staff and senior advisor to President George W. Bush, Wall Street Journal columnist and Fox News contributor. Carl, 
It's great to have you back here. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. I want to start with all this business about classified material, President Biden and the various discoveries and the excuses. Let's just start here. When you were at the White House and had very significant access to a lot of things, what were the hard and fast rules that everybody knew regarding the handling of classified material? Well, it doesn't leave the campus. That is to say it stayed within the White House. And when you left the White House, you didn't take anything with you. So to to me, I I love these questions that are popping up about this, like, you know, when did they find out about it and why did they delay letting people know about it? I'm interested in a couple other things. Who took these out of the White House? Who took took documents to Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and perhaps his long as six or seven years ago. And, you know, before we get around to why did they not tell us that they found this stuff on six days before the midterms, or why did they not tell us that they found additional stuff on December 20th and held that until the 12th of January, I'm I'm more interested in how did this stuff happen in the first place? And how did it end up at the Penn-Biden Center? Did, Did President Biden, Vice President Biden, then former Vice President Biden, did he use any of that material for speeches or for meetings or for writings? Uh, that that he may have done at the time. Uh, who else saw it? Did you know we, the Secretary of State wor- then worked for him there? Uh, Steve Rashetti, a counselor, his counselor in the White House, then worked for him there. As did eight other members of his administration. Did any of them see these classified materials? And who else might have had access to that yeah, office absolutely. or to that garage or to that house? Right, that also matters. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but but, you know, and, and then also this raises the question of who is funding all of this. He's getting paid nine hundred thousand dollars as a professor who doesn't give who doesn't teach a class. Um, but we know that a lot of money was received by um, by the University of Pennsylvania during this period of time uh, from China. And I thought it was very illuminating how crafty the uh, University of Pennsylvania was when they were asked, did any Chinese money Uh, fund the Biden Center, they said, quote, the Penn Biden Center never solicited or received any gifts from any Chinese or or other foreign entity, adding, quote, 100 percent of the Biden uh, Penn Biden Center budget came from, quote, university funds. I mean, that's too artful. The question is not did the Penn Biden Center uh, solicit money from China, but did the University of Pennsylvania receive money from China and then use that money to support the Penn Biden Center. That's different than, you know, uh, no one was suggesting that, that, that the Penn Biden Center well, went to China and asked for money. But and money is fungible. Money to support them. Right. If you've got a general fund and there's a bunch of Chinese money flowing into the general fund, and you can move that money around and you're going to pour a bunch of it into this new center where you're paying the guy, what, the better part of a million dollars as at a professor where he didn't teach any classes. He he loves talking about that, that little biography point, like he was a professor, like he was teaching students, never taught a class. It was just, I guess, this nice setup for a former Democratic official making a bunch of money to do virtually nothing. I mean, and that also, again, feeds into the question of who had access to that office for how long? Were those documents in there for years? It seems like they probably had to have been moved there based on the timeline from another location, so the White House to another place, then to this D.C. office. Lots of questions that you're raising here. Now, Carl, one element of the controversy, and we talked about this yesterday with Howie Kurtz, 
the media almost immediately went into Trump versus Biden mode on classified documents and who was handling them worse and here are all the bullet points for why Trump is worse. And I'm mostly willing to concede that in some ways Trump is worse on this front, although it's gotten hairier and more problematic for Biden as the days have gone on. I think they both pale in comparison to Hillary Clinton, who was, of course, never charged. But Neil Katyal, who was the former solicitor general under President Obama, he tweeted this yesterday. He said, imagine, and this is the the Biden-Trump dichotomy that they're trying to focus on. Imagine if two people, I'm quoting him, borrowed library books and didn't return them. One forgot about the book, finds it a couple years later, and then immediately gives it back. The other person knowingly takes the books and refuses to give them back when the library sends over request after request for the books. I don't really understand why he thought this was a good thing to tweet because this isn't, in my mind, a Trump versus Biden story. This is something that they each have done on their own and are accountable for whatever illegal, unlawful, unethical things that they may have done separately. You don't have to put the examples side by side. But if you're going to go with this, in my mind, not terribly helpful analogy, what if the books that were quote-unquote borrowed were against the law to borrow? Right? I mean, that's, I think, the fundamental problem here. Exactly. You put your finger on it. I love this thing. Well, you know, this is explicable because uh, – Biden was in such a frantic, chaotic several days. He was traveling, and you know it was chaotic and it was frenetic. Wrapping up, closing up his office in the in the, the White House, and then his office in the old Executive Office Building. And somehow or another, you know, this is it's, it's just it was so hectic. Can you know, give him a break? Well, first of all, if the standard is you know how chaotic it is, it what what chaotic? Whose departure from the White House was more chaotic, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? So if if the excuse is it was chaotic, no departure from the White House was more chaotic than Donald Trump. That's complete baloney. Somebody made a conscious decision to take classified material, and you're absolutely right. They leave on January 20th, 2017, and they move into they, – they formally dedicate the Penn-Biden Center office in February of 2018 – I suspect that the formal dedication was after they actually moved in. But for some period of time, those materials were someplace else. And where was that? And who was in charge of it? And who knew that those materials were in there? Because, you know, it takes something special to pull out something that has a tan cover with red stripes on it and in big letters, classified. That, that's that's not the or normal and ordinary paper. Oh, it's even top secret, right? Top secret SCI, top some of that stuff. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top secret SCI on some of that stuff. So, yeah, and, and uh, you know, but this excuse, oh, he, he, you got to excuse poor Joe because it was so frenetic. He was working so hard right up to the final minute. It's baloney, complete and utter baloney. It, you're absolutely right. A deliberate decision was made by somebody to walk out of the White House complex with classified material, and Joe Biden had to have known about it because it's in his files, in his office. The question is, did he deliberately draw on those materials, and were those materials seen by the, the now Secretary of State and the now Counselor of the President or any of the other 10 people who worked in that office who now serve in the Biden right. administration? Or anyone else who might have gone through that garage at any period of time. And, I mean, that's an unknown universe of people. So, I mean, I, I think that on the merits, on the substance, this is very bad. I think they're also handling it terribly. The answers, such 
that they exist at all are terrible. So it's something that we're going to keep watching and covering. Meantime, Carl Rove, I want to ask you about the new Republican majority in the House. Off to a memorable start, certainly, with the big battle over the Speaker vote. Uh, Kevin McCarthy eventually got there 15 ballots later. They've been able to pass a few bills so far out of the House uh, on a number of different fronts, the IRS, uh, late-term abortion, and that kind of thing. We all know that this debt ceiling thing is just looming, um, and and what that's going to ultimately look like, I think, it could get fairly messy. Whether it's uh, specific to the debt ceiling battle or just more broadly speaking, Carl, what is your advice to the Republican majority so they can actually be kind of effective and score points in a way that works for them and maybe put some wins on the board? Well, look, uh, there are three things that, that are going on. We've seen some of them, which are bills to demonstrate where Republicans stand, knowing that there's little or no chance of them even being taken up for a vote in the Senate, let alone passed. There's no, there's no way that the abortion bill that was presented in the pro-life bill presented in the House that passed the House is going to be ever considered by the Senate. So, but I get it. There's some of that we need to do some of that. There's also o- oversight, and I get that. That's that's an important job for Congress to do, and that oversight has got to be done in an appropriate manner. It's got to look like it is reasonable, sensible, and sane. We can't have lunatics in charge of it. Can't be wild. It's got to come to a, a, a conclusion and lead to something that will make the country better, and it needs to be in balance. They need to be thinking about what are the things that they can do through the committee structure that may not be, you know, wedge issues, but are going to make the country better. Take the bill that was passed last time that that begins the process of removing our dependency from being so dependent on the island of Taiwan for semiconductors uh, and, and brings a lot of that back to the United States. That is something that's going to be good for our country. And so the question is, what are the things that they can be advocating? There may not be some high-profile, high hot-button high issue, but win or lose, whether they get it through the Senate or not, is going to cause the American people to say, those people are trying to make our lives better. Now, not stopping the spending, that's important. St- stiffening the border, that's important. Keeping our military strong, that's important. And they've got to make certain that in the midst of all these other things that they're doing, uh, having these demonstration votes on legislation that's going no place past the House and doing oversight, that they also have forward movement on issues that are important to our country. I noticed the Senate, for example, is having a hearing on, on an important issue regarding uh, abuse in the tech industry. Uh, you know, there have been efforts in the states that have been bipartisan to s- stop, uh, you know, uh, uh, state governments and in some instances the colleges and universities from using TikTok because it's a way for the Chinese government to collect information on Americans. So they've got to find a way to do positive, constructive things that cause the American people to say, I get you on those high-profile votes that ain't going anywhere until you got a Republican and a Republican president. Appreciate what you're telling me about oversight of past mistakes by Biden, and you're mixing that in with a very healthy, large dose of trying to make our country better. Since you mentioned a Republican president, that won't happen until 2025 at the earliest. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, Carl, but it's been interesting, and Josh Krasauer wrote about this earlier in the week. Donald Trump announced his uh, run very early, I mean, just after, or actually just before Thanksgiving, just after the midterm election. So he's been a declared candidate now for months. 
uh, something that I don't always remember, but that's true. He's running for president. He's filed all the paperwork. He announced it, et cetera. No one else has gotten in yet. And there are some people maybe waiting to see what another guy down in Florida might do. Other folks biding their time, people sort of looking around, okay, who's going to maybe jump in next? Are you surprised? Because Josh made the point at this stage in 2019, there were a host of Democrats already declared for president. It's only one right now, Donald Trump on the Republican side, sort of a, a bit of a paralysis right now, a frozen moment. How do you read into that? Well, I, I'm not certain I share that it's a frozen moment. Because we have, first of all, we got two prospective candidates, Youngkin of Virginia and DeSantis of Florida, who have legislative sessions. And let me just tell you, having been through a legislative session from January 3rd, 1999 to the end of May 1999, it didn't stop George W. Bush from laying the predicate and the, the foundation for his uh, bid for the presidency. Uh, and I see both of these men have large numbers of people showing up on their doorstep to uh, talk to him about it and encourage him to run. I know that there are groups that are going to Richmond and to Florida to meet with those respective governors. In addition, we and, and also we see things like there's a letter signed by uh, 13, um, I think it's 13 legislators in Michigan, yep. encouraging Ron DeSantis to declare. All that kind of stuff is constructive. They don't need to be out there right now uh, doing the things, you know, making their way through 99 counties in Iowa. Second of all, we have a large, you know, not a large number, we have a number of other people who are testing the waters, moving around the country, finding ways to get their message out and, uh, and, and get to meet and greet people. And they include people like former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former South Carolina governor and former ambassador of the United Nations Nikki Haley. Uh, we have, uh, you know, people are talking about Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, he's moving around a little. Some people are talking about Governor Christie. He's moving around a little. Uh, there's no need for them to go out there and declare and begin the clock running. There's plenty of time for that to happen. It, you know, elections in some degree are reactions to, to what happened last time. And what we saw happen last time on the Democratic side and the time before on the Republican side was we got a lot of people out there early formally as candidates, and the clock started running. They started to have uh, raise money to with limitations on it. And they sort of ran out of, you know, they ran out of, of, of energy and enthusiasm. Uh, and, you know, they didn't need to do it. They, they could get into the race, put their toe in the water, so to speak, by doing what they're doing now without having to become a formal candidate. Yeah. So the announcements are frozen in place, but you're saying there's a lot of sort of shadow action happening uh, behind sure. the scenes and some of it more overt. Uh, Carl, we have like a minute left very quickly debates. I know a lot of Republicans rightfully don't trust the media. How do you recommend the Republicans try to navigate intra-party debates over the next year plus? Yeah, look, we don't, a debate isn't necessarily illuminating. Let me tell you, we have, we have coming up here in Texas in late February, February 24th, a number of people who are thinking about this coming to Texas to meet with the donors to a voter registration, get out the vote effort, about 500 people, donors and activists, and what's going to happen is each one of the people who comes is going to be interviewed by a member of the Texas congressional delegation for 45 minutes. We did this two years ago in May of 2021, and in alphabetical order, we had Chris Christie, Tom Cotton, Rand DeSantis, uh, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, and Tim Scott. Nikki Haley wanted to come, but her daughter was graduating from nursing school that day. 
and for 45 minutes each, they were interviewed by a member of the Texas delegation. Yeah, so and it was fabulous. A different kind of forum, not necessarily a debate. We'll get to some debates at some point, but it sounds like the overall message here is you don't have to go too fast, too quickly. And that seems to be the order of the day, at least so far among Republicans. We've got to leave it there for the moment with Carl Rove. Carl, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you. Let's step aside. Come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. This is an interesting little nugget from NBC News involving Generation X, which is the generation just above mine. I'm a millennial. My parents are boomers. So Generation X is sort of that middle generation that people sometimes just sort of skip over. Big, important generation coming into its own, politically certainly, sort of the the parent class now. According to NBC, back in 2012, a decade ago, when Barack Obama won re-election, Generation X voters at the time preferred Democrats over Republicans to control Congress by a seven-point margin. Ten years later, in 2022, Generation X voted Republican over Democrats by 12 points. 52 to 40. So that's a 19-point swing among Gen Xers in a decade over the question of who they want to control Congress. You might say, well, people get older, they get more conservative. That has been the, the track historically. Generation X is on track in that way. Good news for Republicans. Bad news for Republicans, so far, as we get older, millennials aren't getting more conservative, at least measurably. So something to keep an eye on. But interesting note on Generation X in politics. That's a generation uh, just after Christine's as a boomer, I think. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Stay tuned. Dagan McDowell coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show from New York City today and tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free every day on demand. I'll be on Kennedy's show tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. See you there. Fox News alert. The Dow way down today, plunging 613 points, ending at 33,296. I'm imagining some of that probably has to do with weak retail sales in December. So some of the inflation numbers getting a little bit better, although a lot of them are still really tough. Maybe because a recession is coming. We'll ask Dagan McDowell about that coming up later on in the hour. I do want to talk ever so briefly about what's happening in Switzerland. It's the Davos World Economic Meeting they do every year where a massive fleet of private jets descends upon this apparently very nice part of Switzerland. I've been to Switzerland a few times. I've not been there to discuss many challenges, especially climate change, because, you know, if they can't do that on a Zoom call, they all have to fly to Switzerland and have fancy parties to do that. And the thing is, I've seen a number of conservatives just bashing the conference. I would never go there. That's for globalist, elitist, blah, blah, blah. Let me just put this out there. I will happily attend Davos. If it's on someone else's dime, you want to invite me, 
fly me on your private jet or, you know, put me in first class on Swiss Air or something like that. Put me up in a nice hotel, maybe a little budget for uh, booze and, and dinners. I'm there. I'll go on panels. I'll make jokes. I mean, I'll be myself. I'll say what I think. I'm Sign me up. I'd be thrilled to go. I just don't think that they're really that interested in people like me. I just just putting it out there in case anyone is a, a big organizer for next year or whatever. My my fees are very reasonable. I just needed to say that. Meanwhile, there have been some weird sound bites coming out of this. John Kerry, who is, I guess, climate czar. Of course he flew to this. I mean, the man exists to wear fancy ties and go to fancy events to talk about climate change and how everyone else needs to combat climate change and we need to hobble our economies to do so. In fact, he was sort of grousing about growth, the the wrong type of economic growth. Here he was in Davos, uh, cut 15. If you look at the way we live... The, the incredible sort of destructive process of growth, the way we interpret it, not, not as enlightened growth, but as a, as a robber baron growth, growth uh, driven by a lot of different things. We're not doing everything we promised. Nobody. Mm-hmm. A little lecturing at the green people, not fulfilling their promises, railing against the destructive process of growth, not enlightened growth, of course, which is what he has in mind. He's got a, just gobs of money, a lot of it from his wife's family, by the way. So he's fine. Just all that other grubby growth that other people might benefit from, not good, not good for the planet. Then he had this weird one, cut 16, where he is sort of waxing nostalgic about what they were doing, that the high-minded, important stuff that they're doing over there. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, select group of human beings, because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. It's almost extraterrestrial. Okay, whatever you say, John. And listen, he was getting so passionate and emotional about the process of flying to Switzerland and sitting in a room and talking about basically taxing other people supposedly to save the planet. What an exciting life purpose. Now, look, if someone else were paying me to fly to nice places and sit in a room and talk, that does sound fun. I wouldn't agree with this policy. But he's like, the talks unto themselves, the self-congratulatory nature of all of it, it's just like, I can't relate to that, especially just the pride flowing from him about how much they're accomplishing with their words. Again, not on a conference call that would have a much, 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 much smaller price tag and a much, 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 much smaller carbon footprint. They have to come together in the room to actually talk about saving the planet. He's like... 
He's doing almost like a Biden there. No joke. Not a joke. We're talking. Good. Good for you. Now, on one of the panels, which I believe was moderated by Brian Stelter, formerly of CNN, a woman named Vera Jarova, the vice president of the European Commission, she was talking. This The whole conversation was about misinformation and disinformation and the danger and all that stuff. This is something that Brian Stelter is obsessed with. They don't really care to talk about when they are the purveyors of misinformation. Also, they are very much sort of collectively into the idea of censorship as opposed to just exchanging ideas and having the correct ones win. But this woman was talking about hate speech and the laws against hate speech in other parts of the world. And she just sort of tossed in that hopefully America will go that direction as well. Cut 20. We need the people who understand the language and the case law in the country because what qualifies as hate, hate speech, as illegal hate speech, which you will have soon also in the U.S., I think that um, we, we have a strong reason why we have this uh, in the criminal law. Oh, just a big chuckle from uh, Vera about how it's uh, high past time for the U.S. to criminalize certain speech. At one point, I think in the background, you can hear very faintly one of those Long forgotten now, because he hasn't been on TV for a while. Sort of sighs of agreement and serious thought from Stelter. Hmm. Hmm. Vera, fascinating, fascinating, brilliant. I've seen a few people asking, did a single American who was there on that panel, including journalists, did any of them push back on the idea that the U.S. should change its laws and really its constitution is what would be required to criminalize quote-unquote, hate speech. Part of the problem is who decides what hate speech would be. Setting aside, even if you accept that we should do that, which I don't, if we did, who would decide what was hate speech? Is it the same people who've decided what misinformation is? Because we've seen how that's gone, by and large. We actually have a rough-and-tumble, sometimes messy, speech environment in this country, thanks to our First Amendment, which is a good thing. Full stop. Did anyone on that panel of Americans and journalists have anything to, anything at all to say in defense of the First Amendment as a principle. I have not seen any pushback to that effect. Meanwhile, someone else who was there, it wasn't all lefties. There were, I mean, a bunch of senators and governors, and a lot of them are on the left side of the spectrum who were there on the American end of things. One conservative who's over there arguing his case, Brian Kemp, Governor of Georgia, he's been on this show many times. We've met him when we were down at 106.3 Extra in Atlanta, our great affiliate down there. So in Davos, he was making this point. This sounds just like he sounds back home. Cut 21. It's the question to the voters. You know, look at the candidates and ask who's been fighting for you. Who was fighting to keep your business open when all the pressure from both political parties, from people in high places, from a lot of other people that were sitting in their basement on a computer, was not to stay open, was not to reopen our economy. Who was pushing to get our kids back in the classroom? Well, we did all of those things. And, you know, we proved that we were fighting for people. We were fighting for election security. We were fighting for people to have a good-paying job and to have, you know, to survive, to live, live a, to fight another day economically. In our state. I mean, this is the message that he gave on the stump and got reelected handily. It's probably not 
an argument that the crowd wanted to hear much in Davos, but he brought it to them anyway. Glad someone was there to do that. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this break. Don't go anywhere. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. I don't want to keep just like beating this George Santos story into the ground, but there's just new stuff every day. We told you yesterday about the mini George Santos, the Democrat elected to the state house out in Washington, who lied about his military service, got elected anyway by the Democrats out there, and then was rewarded by the Democratic Party in Washington, putting him on a veterans-related committee, like an extra slap in the face. I saw that this same person also lied on the campaign trail about being a lawyer. Like he had it in his paperwork, in his biography, that he was a lawyer. He never passed the bar. So that guy might have a very bright future ahead of him as a Democrat in a very blue state lying about stuff because that's the way you get ahead, it seems, for a lot of folks. Santos might be in some more trouble, though, because in New York— Out on Long Island, the local Republican Party has completely thrown him under the bus, understandably. Some of the local officials calling for him to resign, saying if he doesn't resign, they will actively oppose him in a primary in 2024. He's saying he's not going to go anywhere. The new development yesterday on Capitol Hill was that he has been assigned committees. So he is now going to serve on a few different committees. He didn't get the plum spots that he was hoping for, but they did assign him to the Small Businesses Committee and to the Space and Technology Committee. And frankly, I think that those assignments make sense. I mean, George Santos is the founder and owner and operator of eight of the 10 most successful small businesses in America, in addition to founding McDonald's. And as for the space and technology side of it, who better than an astronaut like George Santos, right? He and Mark Kelly. George Santos is the only Jew-ish American to ever land on the moon. So I don't know how you argue with that. Now, I mean, people will be making these jokes forever as long as he's in Congress. There's no doubt about that. But one thing... That honestly isn't funny at all, is an allegation that has emerged just recently. The New York Post writing it this way. Disgraced Representative George Santos allegedly conned a disabled, homeless veteran out of thousands of dollars donated to save the man's dying service dog, according to a stomach-turning report. The veteran Richard Osthoff told the local news site Patch that he met Santos, who was using a different name at the time, Anthony DeVolder, during a very difficult time in his life back in 2016. So Santos, using a different name, was running this apparently bogus animal charity that has been accused by other people of bilking them for money and then absconding with it. And the allegation from this veteran, who was homeless at the time, was he had a service dog living with him in this tent, who had a cancerous growth. He did not want to lose his best friend, this dog. 
the charity, George Santos's charity, got involved. They did a GoFundMe. They raised thousands of dollars for this surgery. And then Santos had some alleged experts say, oh, it's inoperable. And then just ghosted the guy, and the $3,000 just disappeared. That's the allegation. Now, if Santos stole the money, because he's also been accused of stealing money in Brazil, there are other questions floating out there about where other large sums of money came from. When Santos was struggling financially for many years and all of a sudden had millions, what's that about? Where did that come from? As I've said, if there are crimes involved, then he should go. If there are not crimes charged or otherwise involved, he's a duly elected representative until he's not. That's kind of been my position on this. But if it is true, and there is some contemporaneous evidence, tweets at the time, I think there were Facebook messages or text messages, the veteran texting George Santos, a.k.a. whatever the other name was, Anthony DeVolder, like, we need this money, my dog is going to die. And Santos basically being like, no, it's not eligible anymore, and then just no longer responding to phone calls or messages, just went away, $3,000 never heard from again. The dog, by the way, died. Homeless war veteran living with this dog. They raise thousands of dollars, and then that money disappears it's like hard to envision something more of a caricature of like evil, heartless, soulless stuff than this. Now, here's the thing. Is it true? As I mentioned, there's some contemporaneous evidence that the fundraiser happened and the person at the time was very distressed and demanding answers. Where's this money? My dog's not doing well. There are screenshots of that stuff. Maybe there's another story to be told another side to this, apparently George Santos was asked about it by some journalists, and he said the story was fake. The problem is, let's just say for the sake of argument for one second, that this is a smear, and it's not really a fair representation of what happened, and it's an unfair hit job on George Santos. Who's going to believe him? Right For George Santos to call an allegation fake, saying, oh, that's a fake story, his entire life is a fake story. So I am not convinced that this is a fake story. If I had to bet some money, I would guess probably it is mostly or completely true, which is just so awful. But in the event, on the chance that it's not true, he has dug himself such a hole on credibility through his own proactive, relentless, serial lying that no one is going to believe him. And that's on him. Then you put him on a small business committee the day that it comes out that he was like allegedly swindling a homeless vet out of a bunch of money raised out of the goodness of people's hearts to help a dog who then died because the dog didn't get help. I mean, it is, I mean, that is... That is very ugly. And you wonder at some point do the Republicans decide, I mean, it is not worth being saddled to this guy, even with the very microscopic majority that they've got. I don't know. But one guy says it's true. 
Another guy says it's fake. My money would be on the homeless veteran or the formerly homeless veteran and not the pathological liar. That's just me. That's the built-in assumption, and the benefit of the doubt doesn't go to the other guy. Let's just put it that way. Man, what a saga. When we come back, Dagan McDowell is here in studio. She's got a brand-new show debuting next week on the TV side of things. Can't wait to talk about that and much more next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through the show, it's the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, the podcast. Free and on demand every day. With us here in studio, sitting right across from me, is Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network. She will be co-host of a brand new show that starts on Monday. We'll be talking all about that with Dagan. Hello. God Benson. It's so good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year since we haven't seen each other. So I just have to say this. I saw on Twitter over the holidays, I forget exactly what date it was, but it was announced that Dagan would be co-hosting her own show with Sean Duffy every weekday on FBN. It's called The Bottom Line. It starts this coming Monday, right. 6 p.m. Eastern, leading into Kennedy, our other right. dear friend. And I just had this giant smile on my face because Aww. you root for people that you like and you have been everywhere. I mean, you've been all across both networks forever and outnumbered in the five and Maria Bartiromo and everything. But to have your own TV real estate is such a big deal. And it made me so happy and so excited. I emailed Megan Albano, the boss, being like, great, this is gold. So tell us about the bottom line. It Sean and I come from similar backgrounds, even though he's from Wisconsin and I'm from small town Virginia. It's he worked in Washington and I've lived in New York City for thirty some odd years. And it's more about remembering where we came from and giving voice to the viewers in a way that maybe we weren't we couldn't on other shows that I've done, like other ensemble shows. Um, so it's kind of not that New York, D.C. worldview. No, it's, it's the, the opposite. rural Wisconsin, rural Virginia worldview. Right. The greatest compliment I have ever gotten working – I've worked here for 20 years this spring, 20 years full-time, longer than that, part-time, is when a viewer says, I'm sitting at home, and you say exactly what I'm thinking. And so to give – to make sure that we're covering the things that matter – to the audience, but also <laughs> expressing the feelings of people at home and also giving them solutions. So, but it's also talking about news of the day. Sure. And, but as an example, with what's going on in Northern Virginia, in Fairfax County, mm-hmm. with uh, school officials sitting on National Merit Scholarship Awards. We've been Not, covering it. Right. In fact, I have more updates tomorrow on the show, but that's a big deal. And it, apparently it's been going on for years and years, sitting on them. Fox Digital has reported on that what a child being deprived of knowing how much that's knowing in advance of applying for early admission, as an example, what that could cost a family. And so that as an example, but I'd re- I want to talk to that child and that mother. 
that father because it is can you imagine the evil of someone in a school system or people in school systems and high schools that would do that to a child i've actually been thinking a fair amount about it as i read more and more about it and it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that i was applying for colleges it actually was 20 years ago believe it or not like i can't believe that i'm saying that but i remember it like it was yesterday getting in and the pressure and the nerves and waiting to get that envelope and everything and to have someone deliberately holding you down for some toxic ideological project is is really sick. So that's the type of story or, that you guys will cover at right. the bottom line. What's the format going to look like when people tune in next Monday moving forward at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business? Is it you guys at the desk together? Are there guests coming on? How are you going to play it? There'll be guests on the show, but the— I, Let me volunteer as tribute. I'd love okay. to come on. Absolutely. <laughs> of course. You have to bring Roy <laughs> and Adam. Um, the The start of the show will be maybe three topics, news of the day, but with, in TV lingo, elements. So mm-hmm. sound bites, um, statements, video. I can't get enough of the— press corps screaming at Biden yesterday and he's squinting and not saying anything and like my reaction to that yesterday when I saw it was okay you don't look like Clint Eastwood and just because you're squinting and you can't see the press corps we can still see you right so cameras work so that so the top of the show will be kind of three topics that just the two of us go back and forth on great little banter between the hosts. Right. And then in the ensuing TV lingo blocks, you'll yes. bring in guests and other talking heads to join in the fun. It sounds like it's going to be, knowing you and knowing Sean a bit, a lively show. <laughs> it's not going to be uh, a dull drag. Let's put it that we, way. We were on with Sandra Smith and John Roberts on the news channel a bit ago, and I started off by saying, I just found out that Sandra Smith got a Compass Duffy Christmas card. I did not. <laughs> I want to know what's happening here. I want to know when I'm going to get invited to write like a little mini chapter in one of the Campos Duffy books because they love, they go all over the building. They get everyone to like contribute recipes have, and stories. And I the, haven't either. <laughs> and you're the co-host. Well, it sounds like you, Wait, this, this could be your very first topic on your very first show. I'm being left out in so many ways. <laughs> be like, Sean, okay, topic one. How do I get on the Christmas card list? And apparently, Rachel had to tell him over and over again that he was mispronouncing my name as he's from Wisconsin. And he would say, and he still says it, and I'm totally fine with that, Deegan? Deegan. But that's like one thing I totally don't get hung up on. Because people, that's, that's, that's America. People now, are going to, people pronounce people's names differently. Yeah, but usually not like when you get to actually know someone and work with them every day. So maybe he will transition to Dagan at some point soon. Well, my real name is Mary Dagan. Oh. And so he actually pronounces, because people in my hometown still call me Murray Dagan. And so he pronounces Murray Dagan very well. He's been working on it. I can tell. That is a piece of trivia that I did not know. Murray Dagan. And they just sort of blended into one one name, even though it's two. Murdigan. Now, in Wisconsin, if I were to have my daily Coke Zero sitting here, your word for that product generically 
is what? Because in Wisconsin, they say pop. In parts of the South, they call everything Coke. Are you an everything Coke person or are you a soda person? I am an everything Coke person. Wow. And my grandmother would call it Coca-Cola. 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 Even if it wasn't actually Everything, Coca-Cola. but it wasn't Coke. It was Coca-Cola. Okay. And, strangely enough, all the great soft drinks are from the South. And Pepsi was invented in New Bern, North Carolina. So Pepsi was actually invented closer to where I grew up. But we still refer to everything as Coca-Cola. Are you more of a Pepsi person? Because I'm total. I drink nothing but Coke Zero on the soda side. I drink, I drink Red Bull, but I would drink if I, I'm going to drink soda or Coke, it's going to be actual sugar Coke, like real Coca-Cola. Real Coca-Cola. That's my friend Mary Catherine Ham. She's the same way. She's from the South, and she's like, "Get this zero diet yeah, stuff I out here. I want Coke. full Coca-Cola Classic." Yes. All right. I mean, I. I am. I've weaned myself off of it. I am completely obsessed with Mary Catherine Ham. I mean, aren't we all? Yes. And her beautiful and new boy. New, um, Cal. Cal. Which also has a great little southern, I don't know, yes. element to it, I feel like. Yes. Now, we could just sit here and talk. About our friends. About our lives and yes. friends here. It's like, hey, there's actually microphones in an audience. But since we're doing this, we haven't had you on the show since the Christmas party, which we talked about a lot here on the show. Mm-hmm. Early December, so we're going back a month and a half. We will not relitigate the red wine spill. I don't think producer Christine spilled on you. She spilled on almost everyone else, but not you. Wait, did, is she the one who spilled on Katie Pavlich? Yes. Oh, she did. Yeah. I see a hand up. Yeah. Hand up in the back. Okay. Yeah. She spilled on Katie. She spilled on Adam. She spilled on the ground twice, but she did not spill on the white couch. That was someone else, undetermined. Although we have two or three major suspects, it was not you. You, however, at one point were seemingly missing from the party. Like, where did Dagan go? No, you were there. You were just sort of out of sight. Where were you? I was under your dining room table <laughs> with Roy, the dog, for a long time. Hey, you spent some quality time on the ground under a table. With Roy's toy, playing mm-hmm. with Roy and Roy's toy. Are you kind of obsessed with Roy? Yes. Yeah. And people were like, who's the woman on the floor <laughs> with the dog? And I'm like, who? Oh, that's Dagan. And in my Instagram profile, I say, I will speak to your dog before I speak to you. That's and right. I'd s- it's accurate. 100% accurate. So, like, literally, and Kennedy was at the party. And she had just had a surgery, so she's on crutches. She was getting these little empty bottles at that point of fireball, because people were taking Mm -hmm. fireball shots. Cat Timp brought them. So there's a theme here. Cat Timp brought the fireball shots. People would drink them. Then there were these little empty plastic bottles, Mm -hmm. and then Kennedy was just throwing them at people, like flinging them at people. So I've got you on the floor with my dog, Kennedy throwing empty bottles provided by Cat, and all my other guests are like, what is going on with all these ladies and Fox? I'm like, don't ask me. This is just a dysfunctional episode of Outnumbered with lots of alcohol, and it was super fun. Let's take a best, quick break. Because best parties. It, best it's parties. such a fun group. When we come back, though, we'll talk about, like, okay. actual news, a few things that the president has said. Uh, the CEOs out in Davos sound pretty sour. We'll get to all of that with Dagan McDowell. Her new show starts Monday on Fox Business Network. The bottom line, keep it right here. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Dagan McDowell here with me on The Guy Benson Show, co-anchor of The Bottom Line, which starts next week, FBN, 6 p.m. Eastern every day alongside 
Sean Duffy. He calls her Deegan McDowell, at least for now. He's learning. <laughs> so, Deegan, let's talk about some news. Some of the inflation numbers that have come out in the last couple of days are promising in a lot of respects. Inflation down, CPI down, core CPI ticked up a little bit, wholesale coming down, but food prices out of control. People are talking about eggs. It goes well beyond that. What's your bird's eye view of the cost of everything, that picture right now? That inflation is easing because the economy is headed toward a recession. So there might be less pain in terms of price increases, but the reason is negative and not pretty. The Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates at a pace so aggressive that we haven't seen it in many people's lifetimes. We haven't seen rate hikes this fast in such a short period of time since the 80s. They might back off those interest rate increases a little bit. That's the expectation, but short-term rates will be close to 5%, and the economy will be contracting by the middle of this year. And I fully expect the Biden administration to blame Republicans for that at absolutely every turn. Oh, yeah. I mean, they'll try. We'll see if that works. There are headlines coming out of Davos in this World Economic Summit or whatever they call it. We talked a bit about it earlier. But among many CEOs, I mean, it is a bearish sentiment. They've Mm -hmm. all flown in on these very opulent private jets to this beautiful place in Switzerland to all get together and say, oh, yeah, it's going to get really ugly. Global recession perhaps coming. How deep of one should we expect here? Because I think there's still some hope that it would be shallow like most people seem to think we're not going to avoid it but it may not be that much of a of a painful wallop what are you hearing what are you reading a lot of it will depend on how deep the job cuts are if we had job cuts announced thousands of layoffs from microsoft i don't read too much into the layoffs that have been coming out of silicon valley and the large large technology companies because quite frankly those companies have a lot of people making a lot of money sitting around really not doing anything. So and those I'm, are kind of like right-sizing. I'm not, yes, I'm not joking. There are people who worked at Google. I know this from friends and family members at Google, at Facebook, who collect deep six-figure pay packages who don't do anything. They have companies like that have so much cash that they don't know how to spend it. They don't know where to spend it. It's pressure is put on them to spend that money and so now they're just trying to whittle down the size of the workforce that being said how completely pathetic that these ceos have to fly to switzerland if they think that a recession is coming to spend that money that exorbitant amount of money to send a ceo it's a cost to an investor a shareholder a taxpayer, if you're talking about a Chris Ray or a John Kerry, to go over there and have a pricey pity party about a recession on the horizon, none of that makes any sense. It is the, it is a boondoggle for billionaires, and it, I, I've never understood why people go to that thing. That, a lot of it will depend on 
what the Federal Reserve continues to do in terms of tightening monetary policy, raising interest rates, but also uh, reducing that balance sheet, removing money from the system. There is still a lot of euphoria and mania sloshing around in the world. But it might come to a crashing halt at some point if this recession is coming and if it's deep. Mm -hmm. Before we go, I responded briefly to this soundbite yesterday on the show. This was the president MLK Day talking to Al Sharpton's group. Cut 24. Interested to get your reaction right after this. You're going to talk about big spending Democrats again? Guess what? I reduced the deficit last year $350 billion. And this year, federal deficit is down $1 trillion plus dollars. Hear me. That's a fact. And there's going to be hundreds of billions reduced over the next decade. But so what? These guys are the fiscally, you know, they're fiscally demented, I think. They don't, they don't quite get it. Fiscally demented. They laugh at that. The, the reason the deficit fell is because co- these COVID programs expired. But that's year over year. Joe Biden in two years added $5 trillion in new borrowing and new spending. $5 trillion. And he wanted a lot more. And do you know what? Of all the programs. Well, they've created a brand new entitlement in the form of the enhanced subsidy for Obamacare. It was extended for three years last year. Mark my words, that is not going away. That is a new entitlement never that this nation cannot afford. But the thing that makes me the angriest for hardworking Americans who do not have college degrees or who did not go into debt to get it is the continued moratorium on making student loan payments. And I will tell you why. Because it's not just not making payments. Those people, and these are rich people, this is not the people who are suffering hardships. These are rich people who have who are doctors and lawyers and investment bankers. They have not been making payments on their student loans for 35, 36 months now. And there's no interest accruing. So what that means is that debt is being inflated away. So when you are not accruing interest on debt, that loan is declining in real value by the inflation rate. Oh, and like just the unfairness, the whole student debt thing is That's wild to me. That alone, through the middle of next year, is $200 billion in additional spending. And that, for now, is our bottom line with Dagan McDowell. It starts Monday with Sean Duffy, 6 p.m. Eastern, Fox Business Network. I can't wait. You're Great to see you. Break a leg. We're Thank rooting you for so you. Much, the Guy Appreciate Benson Show back with more. Final hour coming up. Janice Dean is here next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. From New York City, it's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the content every day for free, on demand, including our podcast, the entire show. Totally no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. K 
Catch Me Tonight with Kennedy on Fox Business Network. That's in the 7 p.m. hour on that channel with my dear friend. Looking forward to that. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It's so good. It is so refreshing. It's getting colder out. I drink it year-round because I'm a fan. Many of you are as well as it grows in popularity. TheLongDrink.com to find out where it's sold near you or order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, joining me here in studio at the worldwide headquarters of Fox News in the Big Apple is our friend and colleague Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox and a New York Times bestselling author. She has a brand new book out this week, came out yesterday. She has been everywhere. She was on the number one show in all of cable promoting the book yesterday, The Five. The book is entitled I Am the Storm, Inspiring Stories of People Who Fight Against Overwhelming Odds. And Janice, it is so good to see you as always. In person. Yes. I love that. Now, we have this book to talk about, and we will. But first. (laughs) Important things. Yes. First things first. Yes. How is Lola, your Bedlington Terrier? Amazing. She is the best. My husband just sent me a picture of Lola because I've been doing all this book promo, right? I'm not home as I usually am around this hour to take her out, give her some love. So he took her to work today, uh, (laughs) and he's been sending me pictures of Lola at uh, Fort Totten. Do you get the same reaction that we do? Because Bedlingtons have a very, shall we say, distinctive look. Yes. Where people can't really take their eyes off of whatever this furry sheep type dog (laughs) creature is. We get so many questions. What is this? Right. Can I pet him or her? Mm-hmm. They want to know more. Yes. I feel like it's um, it's a wonderful little secret that I, I really want to share with the world uh-huh. now, right? Yes. A lot of people don't know about the Bedlington Terrier. I did not know about the Bedlington Terrier until you showed me Roy. Yep. We It happened on this show. It did. It happened on this show, and then in the next commercial break, I sent you a few photographs and within months, you had one. Yes, it was that quick. And I was honestly a little bit nervous because not nervous that I wasn't giving you good advice or that Bedlingtons are anything less than amazing, amazing and adorable. But to get your sons in particular so excited, so in love, just based on photographs, yeah. then it's like you go through this whole rigmarole to get your hands on one. Now you've mm-hmm. got Lola, a new adopted member of your family, and you're trying to go through the training process. I remember thinking, I wonder... <laughs> Five or six months from now, how is this going to be feeling? Are we still going to be swooning over Lola and the Bedlington experience? And the answer seems to be... Oh, my goodness. Yes. Where has she been all my life? (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's just brought so much joy into our lives. And, you know, we had a tremendous loss a couple of years ago. And I, of course, we'll talk about that and our listeners know. But she has brought, like, such a light in our lives, Mm -hmm. Guy. And I think... We were afraid of that, too. You know, you have loss in your life. You're afraid to love something again right, Like, are you so allowed much? to? Can you do this? Yes. Is it disrespectful? Is it too soon? It's it's a myriad of all of those things, but I'm so glad that we went down this road. It's just pure, unadulterated joy. love and joy. It's <laughs> unconditional from <laughs> these little creatures, and it's just so cute. Even getting a little photo, because I know you're going to show me in this upcoming break the photo that your husband sent from work yes. with Lola today. Getting photos mm-hmm. of your dog puts an extra spring in your step, of I have found. It just sort of like fills your heart in a very special way. And last point I'll make on this before <laughs> we get to the book. I'm not sure how much you travel. You'll probably be doing some book events and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how 
clued in Lola has gotten yet to your habits, but Roy, our Bedlington, he's been around the block. He's six. He knows what's up. <laughs> he's lived with me his entire life. He knows when I'm leaving, oh. and I travel a lot. And so when I get out that particular piece of luggage oh. and I get out the clothes hanger and the travel bag and the whole garment bag set up, oh. he knows. In the early days, he thought he could maybe do something to prevent me from leaving. The saddest thing ever was when he went and got one of his little bones and put it in my bag. Oh, my goodness. That was heartbreaking. Oh. But now he's sort of a grizzled veteran of the lifestyle. <laughs> so all he does is he he sulks. Yeah. He mopes. He knows. And Adam says, oh, Roy's mad. Yep. And Roy's, oh, they do. Roy's mad. Yes. And I know I'll get home today and she will give me the cold shoulder a little bit. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. I, she'll be happy to see me, but then she'll kind of ignore me. Mm-hmm. He does a little wag of the tail. And then he's like, wait, no, I'm still mad. Yes. And he'll sort of sulk yep. for a little bit. And then... All is forgiven. Yes. Yes, they they know. And they are they have us wrapped around their little paw. Yeah, very intuitive. And such a source of just happiness, sustenance, yes. which is typically what you are here around this place. Oh, that's kind. No, no, you are. And this is your reputation well-earned in the building as someone who is just a happy person. Even when the weather's bad, you're just a joy to have around. And your first two books, your first two bestsellers, were characteristically title things like the sunniest sunshine you can sun or what, you know, that was sort of the gist. Yeah. And then this is a turn from all the sun and sunshine to the storm. There is a little peak of sunshine though on the cover. You see that. Just a tiny bit. Tiny peak. But you've got the clouds, you've got the lightning bolt, Mm -hmm. and this is a very different book in some ways. It's similar in the sense that you are still finding incredible stories Mm -hmm. that can inspire. Yes. But... These stories are forged in darkness. Correct. And I think you have to go through a storm to have the light. I've learned that, you know, a few times in my life when things have gotten really bad and the storm is whipping around and you just don't know where you're going to get out of it. And then when you do and you have perspective and you feel like you're stronger because of it, uh, you know why that purpose was, what that purpose was. And the stories that are in there are tremendous people who, despite the odds, despite the challenges in front of them that they knew were enormous, they continued. And those types of stories really inspire me, and I wonder where that fire, that storm comes from within, because I found I was in that almost three years ago. Yep. So we'll talk about some of the other examples from other people that you sought out, but I'm not surprised that your story plays such a big role in the conception of this book and in the book itself because, frankly, you and I had these conversations a lot, mm-hmm. regularly, for months. Yes. More than a year, for sure, when you were in this unusual position of actually fighting and advocacy, when that's not really your stick or what you were necessarily placed on this earth initially to do. Very uncomfortable. Uncomfortable for you. You've grown in that comfort level with experience and with results. But especially early on, I could even just sense on your face that you knew you had to do it. Yeah. But you didn't really love doing it. Hated it. Yeah. So for people who might be new to the show, who aren't familiar with our longstanding friendship and our many sometimes highly emotional conversations about this, give us just the short version of what happened with you. 
your family. Right. So my husband's parents were both in separate elder care facilities, not there for long either. This was such a, a big decision for us to do. And we were trying to get his dad in better shape to join D at the assisted living residence close to us on Long Island. We were trying to give them a better life because their health was failing them. And COVID crashed into our lives. It took the life of Mickey first, died alone by himself Mm. in the nursing home, didn't even know he was sick. We were all in lockdown. Then we lost his mom. Sean had to tell his mom that the dad had passed away. Hardest thing he's ever done. She gets COVID, dies in the hospital. And then we start learning about Governor Cuomo's executive order to put COVID-positive patients into nursing homes when we had no clue that this was happening. Mandating it. Yeah, for 46 days. And we learned there was over 9,000 sick patients put into New York nursing homes. And they lied about that. They covered it up. Correct. They blamed everyone else. Yes. We've gone through all the sordid details of that scandal. And at one time, I could go chapter and verse through all of it. The bottom line is... They forced, knowingly, yes. six seniors into these crowded facilities, and it resulted in a lot of deaths. Yes, and we knew, the one thing we knew at the very beginning, because there was a lot of unknowns with the virus, that it was going to be very deadly to the elderly. We knew that from the very beginning, from Washington State, because COVID had gotten into the nursing homes there. And he even said that. He said no, a number of times, if the virus gets into nursing homes, it will be like fire through dry grass. Yeah, and then he was just putting a bunch of the dry grass as close together as Correct. possible. Correct. He to, lit the match. Yeah, it's just a wild thing. And as I've said to you numerous times, if they had just said, wow, our intentions were this, we screwed up badly, we are so sorry, mm. we need to make amends, that would have been one thing. Instead, it was lying, lying. and attacking, coming after Blaming you. someone else. Very snide remarks about you personally, mm-hmm. that you're not an expert on anything except maybe the weather. Well, you've become an expert on this. You've engaged in that activism, and you now have allies across the aisle in New York State and around the country on these issues. So that was sort of the jumping off point. I knew at some point a book was coming that was going to feature that story. Mm-hmm. But very much in keeping with you, the book isn't totally or even mostly about you or your family. It's an important story. You wanted to seek out other people who at least had trajectories that felt somewhat familiar. Yes. Let's talk about a few of them next with Janice Dean on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Janice Dean is with us, author of the brand new book, I Am the Storm, out this week. And it chronicles the stories of a number of people. One of those women is named Maureen. You love this story. The best story. Who is Maureen? Is it Flavin? Yeah, so Maureen Flavin, that was her maiden name. Uh, Sweeney is her married name. She's still alive, by the way. She's going to be 100 years old this year. And I I knew the story about the storm being a big deal during uh, World War II and the D-Day invasion. I knew that the storm was um, one of the biggest storms to affect history. I didn't know that the information was given by a young woman who worked at a post office that happened to be in a lighthouse on a remote coast of Ireland. And Maureen took that job. She was very young, early 20s. And one of her jobs was to collect weather data and and send out the data to Dublin. And it was during the war. 
And she had no idea why she was doing that, but it was the respons- one of her responsibilities. And then coming close to the invasion, she was starting to get calls on the hour every hour about those weather measurements. Mm. And she knew something was going on because they were saying, please check, please repeat. Please check, please repeat. And at the time, she was working with Ted Sweeney, who became her husband, and was saying, Ted, will you please check this? They keep asking me, please check, please repeat. Well, they didn't know the gravity of the reporting until decades later. Like one of the most consequential days yes, and world events in history. The Allied forces postponed D-Day by a day. They were supposed to go in June 5th. But because of the storm that Maureen helped forecast, they decided to wait one day. Other piece of information is they only had a very small window of opportunity to go in because there was a huge storm behind this one. Oof. Yeah. You just think how any little thing could have gone differently. I've read, you know, we've lost 12,000 lives, but it would have been more like close to 100,000 lives had they gone in during the storm. And they took the enemy off guard because the enemy was like, oh, it's going to be – they're not going in. Yep. And they also assumed and they had been led to believe that the invasion might be elsewhere. I mean a lot of things had to go right for the arc Mm -hmm. of history to go the right way in World War II. How did you find her? I have a great – wonderful assistant named Kelly May, who works with Jesse Waters, and I've known her for a very long time. I remember when she was an intern on Fox and Friends, and her and I, uh, you know, have become friends over the years, and I was telling her about this book, and I just asked her, I said, I'm going to need somebody who's going to help me find these stories that I want to tell, and she's like, I want to do that for you, and so she was the one that did the research and found her son, Vincent, who agreed to do the interview, and this is how it all kind of ties together. It's a full circle moment because I don't think he does a lot of interviews. He agreed to do it because his sister, Emer, works in upstate New York at a nursing home. Wow. And knew my family's story and said to Vincent, you must talk to Janice Dean. Wow. Now, as a good Canadian, you included a hockey story in this book. It's a USA hockey story. Yeah. One of the greatest moments, in fact, I'm a huge sports fan, and I've been asked, and the answer is always immediate, if I could transport myself in time to any single sporting event ever, including championships won by my teams, if I could go back to one ever, the answer is Lake Placid, New York, 1980, beating the Soviets in hockey. That features into this book. Incredible. Just a brief vignette there, Janice. Well, the captain of the hockey team that beat the Soviets that people say is the greatest David and Goliath sporting event of all time. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And it was important to tell that story because it was during a time when we needed a real feel-good story, right? There were so many things going wrong during that period of time in the 1980s. Um, And this incredible um, story about a hockey team of college you know, uh, college-level players that really didn't know what they were up against. Herb Brooks, the coach. Yeah. I mean, go see the movie. Oh, it's great. Right? I saw it with my kids. It brought a tear to my eye. And I'm glad to bring that story up because it was one of those days where the country needed to come together, and they did with one hockey game. Yeah, it's like kind of a dark time, and you need that happiness. It's like Team USA Hockey 1980 was to the country as Lola has been to your family. (laughs) That's the analogy I'm going to reach for here. And when you go through this book, I Am the Storm, by Janice Dean, our guest, there are stories that come from the opioid crisis, from Mm 9-11. I mean, some very difficult topics. And then, of course, Janice tells those stories 
in their darkness, in their sadness, in their difficulty, but then also what was seized upon by these heroes in the book to then, and the protagonist, to then channel those feelings and those energies into something positive, yes. which is what Janistein has done in her own life on behalf of her own family. And now she has recounted that and other stories in her brand new, bound-to-be best-selling book, I Am the Storm, inspiring stories of people who fight against overwhelming odds. Janistein, I would wish you good luck with the book. I'm just not sure you're going to need any luck. <laughs> I mean, you were on Outnumbered today, The Five yesterday, The Guy Benson Show here doing our little part. Aww. I know you've got Gutfeld coming up at the end of the week. You're hitting all the big ones. Well, listen, You were just on Fox News Sunday yeah, uh, recently. Yes, with my buddy, Shannon Bream. Oh. She's the best. You know that. Oh, yeah. But listen, you know, I, I had a lot of help. I had a lot of help with this, and I'm looking at one of the people that helped me through this, and I just want to say that I am so grateful to everyone here for believing in me, uh, letting me have this moment, knowing that it wasn't what I wanted to do, but letting me tell the story. I am forever grateful. We have our quirks. We have our peccadillos. We have our flaws. We have our weirdnesses here at Fox. We are a family. We definitely are. And you're like maybe the matriarch of the family. (laughs) The beloved, happy matriarch, who you also don't want to mess with. I do not want to have Janistein on my wrong side ever. And for now, I think I'm right side. That will never happen. (laughs) You introduced me to my Bedlington Terror. You are the dog father. There we go. I'll take that. You are the storm. I'm the dog father. She is Janistein. The new book, I Am the Storm, out now. Janice, great to see you. I love you, buddy. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. In our first hour today, the architect Carl Rove was here talking about the political news of the day, also about classified documents, how they should be handled inside and outside the White House. He knows a thing or two about that. Here's part of my conversation with Carl. President Biden and the various discoveries and the excuses. Let's just start here. When you were at the White House and had very significant access to a lot of things, what were the hard and fast rules that everybody knew regarding the handling of classified material? Well, it doesn't leave the campus. That is to say, it stayed within the White House. And when you left the White House, you didn't take anything with you. So the, to, to me, I love these questions that are popping up about this, like, you know, when did they find out about it and why they did they delay letting people know about it? I'm interested in a couple other things. Who took these out of the White House? Who took who took documents to Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, at perhaps as long as six or seven years ago? And, you know, before we get around to why did they not tell us that they found this stuff on six days before the midterms? Or why did they not tell us that they found additional stuff on December 20th and held that until the 12th of January? I, I'm, I'm more interested in how did this stuff happen in the first place? And how did it end up at the Penn Biden Center? Did did President Biden, Vice President Biden, then former Vice President Biden, did he use any of that material for speeches or for meetings or for writings uh, that that he may have done at the time? Uh, who else saw it? Did you know we, the Secretary of State wor- then worked for him there? Uh, Steve Rashetti, a counselor, his counselor in the White House, then worked for him there, as did eight other members of his administration. Did any of them see these classified materials? And who else might have had access to that yeah, office absolutely. or to that garage yeah. or to that house, right? That also matters. Exactly, exactly. 
but but you know, and and then also this raises the question of who is funding all of this. He's getting paid nine hundred thousand dollars as a professor who doesn't give who doesn't teach a class. Um, but we know that a lot of money was received by uh, by the University of Pennsylvania during this period of time uh, from China. And I thought it was very illuminating how crafty the uh, University of Pennsylvania was when they were asked, did any Chinese money uh, fund the Biden Center? They said, quote, the Penn Biden Center never solicited or received any gifts from any Chinese or, or, or other foreign entity, adding, quote, 100 percent of the Biden, uh, Penn Biden Center budget came from, quote, university funds. I mean, that's too artful. The question is not did the Penn Biden Center uh, solicit money from China. But did the University of Pennsylvania receive money from China and then use that money to support the Penn Biden Center? That's different than, you know, uh, no one was suggesting that 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 the Penn Biden Center well, went to China and asked for money. But and money is fungible. Money to support them. Right. If you've got a general fund and there's a bunch of Chinese money flowing into the general fund, and you can move that money around and you're going to pour a bunch of it into this new center where you're paying the guy, what, the better part of a million dollars as at a professor where he didn't teach any classes, he he loves talking about that, that little biography point, like he was a professor, like he was teaching students, never taught a class. It was just, I guess, this nice setup for a former Democratic official making a bunch of money to do virtually nothing. I mean, and that also, again, feeds into the question of who had access to that office for how long. Carl Rove, that full interview, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, or as part of our free podcast, the entire show, start to finish, on demand for free when the show is over. That's true every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Producer Christine has been banned from an event, from a whole series of events, asked not to participate, not to show up. And no, it's not our show. We've tried. It's something else. We'll explain right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch from New York. It's the Guy Benson Show. Catch me on Kennedy tonight, one-on-one, just after the 7 o'clock hour begins. That's Fox Business Network this evening. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home here. The podcast is free, on demand every day. So earlier this hour, we had Janice Dean here, obviously. And on her way into the studio, we were talking about her new book. I have a copy here in my hands. I am the storm and producer Christine is escorting her into the studio and like this is your chair here are your headphones and she is confessing to Janice that she cookie was one of those people who was just throwing bouquets of flowers of adoration at Governor Andrew Cuomo for quite a long time during COVID and I remember the phase that cookie went through and she brought this up on her own and I was simply confirming that Christine was telling the truth, said, yeah, she has very bad judgment on some things. And Janice just had to nod along. And then later, Janice brought up, almost out of nowhere, unprovoked for me, Janice brought up the Harry and Meghan situation and the British royal family and Harry's book and all of his little juicy, gross details and violating everyone's privacy. And I was like, you know, speaking of Harry and Meghan, you know who loves them is Christine. She's hardcore on their side, just like she loved Andrew Cuomo. See what I'm saying about the judgment thing? And Janice was just almost shooting daggers at Christine, like, who is this person? 
So, Christine, you are making it seem like it is my fault Mm -hmm. for telling the truth. My job is to tell the truth. I'm a truth teller, Christine. (laughs) Let me just say, you missed the beginning of the conversation where I had, I'm the booker of your show. Mm -hmm. So I had booked Janestine. And as we're walking in, I said to her, I really loved the book. I love the whole idea of the book because I knew her challenges, you know, before this. We've had her on for years talking about what was going on with Cuomo. And I had said when I started to read the beginning of her book, she talked about how hard it was at the beginning to go after the former governor of New York because so many people had such admiration for him in mm-hmm. the beginning of the pandemic. And I had said I was one of those people. Yes. I don't think I was in love with the guy. I mean, I think you'd describe yourself as a Cuomo-sexual there for a while. I definitely didn't describe myself as that. I think you may have. Well, but you were talking about how great he was. You called him Andy. You had a little pet name for him. He's so handsome. Remember the macaroni boy? Remember him and his brother? It was it was cute. You loved it. I did. I was never taken in by it. You were. And so... I think that was a judgment issue. I was just so, agreeing. I was agreeing with you on right, that. But but that's not what I needed you to add on to as your producer. I have. I am a professional. I know you don't know this. I have been working well, as a producer. <laughs> I don't know why Dan's laughing too. I've been working as a producer at Fox News since two thousand and five. By the way, I just want to say. You just said almost indignantly, I am a professional, and everyone with an earshot burst into laughter. Not why, why, right? Well, he's not with an earshot, but I'm sure he is chuckling with his little impish grin back in D.C. He knows. Why, you weren't laughing down there, were you? I actually did laugh, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, three for three. So anyway, look, if the shoe fits. That's what I say. And you took Cuomo's side. You're taking Harry and Meghan's side. It's a whole string of these things. I'm just pointing it out. I don't think one has anything to do with the other. It's two different stories. I mean, judge of character and just being right and wrong. By the way, I will say, I guess we had teased recently on a homestretch that we might devote a whole homestretch to you trying to defend Harry and Meghan and Mary Catherine Ham, who came up last hour with Dagan McDowell. She was actually eager to hear you try to defend it because she is so strongly on the other side. Oh, I thought you were going to say she agreed oh, with Oh, absolutely me. not. She's like, she is so cartoonishly wrong about so many of these things. She wanted to hear that segment. And I was trying to find it. I actually went to a random part of Bonus Benson this weekend trying to find it. And it happened to be the moment when I was wondering if you should buy a crumb cake from a store as a backup. And you were absolutely adamant that you had it. It was under control. Don't you worry. Cookie's crumb cake was happening. Who would ever doubt me? And then, of course, there was no crumb cake at all. So or I, eggs. Lit- or eggs. No twirled eggs. So I burst out laughing at that in my car, just totally at random. That's the moment that it landed on. So the plan for this home stretch was actually to interrogate you further on something that you mentioned yesterday, just as like a little aside, and you can't drop a bomb like this at the very end of a home stretch. Like, oh yeah, by the way, Cookie needs to wear the same necklace and touch the plane like you're blessing it when you get on an airplane With every time. With my right hand. With your right hand, touching the plane on the outside, and then you go into the cockpit, and then you texted us photographs of you in cockpits. This is what you do. Yep. It's all very interesting and strange to me. And I was going to ask you a bunch of questions about it here but then on my train up to new york today you're like oh i've got something i want to talk about because you're upset about this a new life tribulation you have been now banned talk about cancel culture you have been banned 
from your daughter's gymnastics events by the coach. What happened? Yeah, thanks a lot, Savannah. (laughs) Wow. Okay, let me just set the scene for you. I was a gymnast growing up. Well, okay? like really, I was like you were a, a co- you were a competitive aerobic athlete in the eighties. That's a long, long, deep pull inside joke. You were trained in the Soviet Union. We know all of that, but we'll just for the purposes of this call it gymnastics. Okay. So, like the two passions in my life were horseback riding and gymnastics. So I did gymnastics, you know, from the age of four until like teen years. So I know a lot about it. Did you do like flips and stuff? Yes, of course. Could you still? No, Megan asks me all the time, and I'm just afraid I'm going to We have a pretty something. long hallway right out here. Can we just see what happens? So I, a few years back during the Summer Olympics, I pretended I was dismounting from a beam when I was call screening for one of the older shows, and I totally ate it and fell. And our boss actually had said, please don't do that anymore because we don't need a lawsuit. Would they sue you? it was not good i everybody heard about it and they were all asking i really did try to dismount so is that what happened at your daughter's thing and you were then banned no so what happened is (laughs) megan i was asked not to come back the the word ban has not been used i mean i was just asked to drop her and pick her up so she goes to gymnastics please do not come here anymore right so i would sit I would sit there for the entire class and watch Megan and, you know, videoing her because I wanted to show her like, you know, after what maybe we could have fixed or something. And Megan is constantly looking at me during the class. So like, she'll be in the middle of trying to do a round off off the beam and she's staring at me. So it's not you're a helicopter parent. You're like a dance mom. No, but I'm actually I'm actually helping. Like, I actually know you because because I know what Savannah apparently Mm -hmm. disagrees. Yeah, thanks. So anyway, Savannah. The, co- as, the actual coach. Mm-hmm. She thinks she's so great because she almost went to Worlds, which is like right below the Olympics. Mm-hmm. She almost has, Almost went to Worlds. Yeah. All right, so she's just right. below Worlds, which is just below Olympics. Which is just below, like I was just below that. Well, except for your. <laughs> like really below. Really, really impressive 80s dance moves and that was nationally televised mm-hmm. but no, anyway please I okay she at the end had said that megan keeps asking like turning around and saying i just want to see what my mommy said you know after she does something because then i would say to her like you know fix your hands or you know sit up tighter oh, so you're coaching her from the sidelines right but not really coaching just helping her and like no. if she's on the beam i'll be like megan megan like you could like Oh, so you're, you're so tight, you are actively tummy. distracting. I didn't know it was distracting. We had a whole conversation. You literally said, even when she's dismounting off of like beams and stuff, she's looking at you. I have to send you a video. There's a video of her just staring at me. So that <laughs> mid air. So how can you say you didn't realize that you were distracting? That is what you're describing is the definition of a distraction. Right, but we could have fixed that. I think I, this was a huge conversation at on Christmas Eve at Judgy Joyce's house because they were all saying like you've got to stop going even back then because Megan was like mommy comes to all of my gymnastics classes and my sister and Bobby were like that's not normal like you drop her off and you pick her up yeah so Joyce Judgy Joyce and Bobby once again are correct 
Yeah, and like, I agree with them. My mom like hightailed it out of there. She, she didn't when I would go to gymnastics. I'm not even sure she knew I was in the door. <laughs> She's like, "See ya." Yeah, like see you in four hours. Like, so, wait, it's anyway. only two hours, mom. See you in four hours. So anyway. The instructor had asked me yesterday, she's like, I just see a little distraction from Megan, and I really do believe Megan can do well. So can maybe you should just drop her and then, like, pick her up. She's like, maybe just come, like, five minutes before the class is over so you can see a little bit of it. That sounds very polite, very constructive. But I don't, I I get so much joy. Like, I really, it makes me happy. Yeah, but who's this about, Christine? Right, but Roy, before I stopped going to him, said, you have to find things that make you happy. This is your therapist, Roy. Right. Your ex-therapist. Yeah. Still haven't found a new one. Yeah. Can't you tell? Yeah, get on that. We need to get on that. The more she talks about this, I'm kind of siding with the instructor now. Oh, like, Oh, absolutely. I mean, no. I'm as sorry, soon as she said I've been banned, yeah, from I never said banned. Gymnastics. I'm like, whatever it is, I'm sure it's justified. Like preemptively, it's like guilty until proven innocent, and in fact, guilty. And the fact that it's Bobby, Judgey Joyce, Savannah, Dan, I'm sure Wyatt, and myself all on one side, Christine. I mean, that should be a pretty powerful thing. Um. Maybe we should bring YY into this. Didn't he do a lot of sports? And wasn't his mother no. on the sidelines at his soccer games or when he made balloon animals? No, wasn't she Wyatt, cheering you were, him on? When, when you were baking in your kitchen, did, was your mother over your shoulder giving you tips every four seconds? No. I, I was the, the sole person in there. I think a little bit of distance is, is good. Yes. Are you saying that I shouldn't go at all to the gymnastics class? Well, I mean, what time? I, I mean, I think... Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go. I think maybe what Christine is really saying is she needs some more work. We don't give her enough job to like fill her day, so she's spending hours hanging out with little kids. Well, no, but as I'm sitting there, I am booking. I have to say, hmm. it's a nice mixture. Can you book Savannah? Megan wants her for her birthday party as her instructor. I'm like, no. I feel like you should drop off, pick up, and go to the actual competitions where the role is to go and cheer and root on and let the actual coach that you're paying do the job. I like to see how Megan is doing. Do you know? Like, every week it seemed like she was doing something, you know, better and better. So I I just really enjoyed watching her. She's like my beautiful little girl. I, I love seeing her up there. Here's my suggestion. And she's really good. She's definitely better than the other kids. I have a solution. Rather than spending all this time at the gymnastics situation where you're a distraction. Instead, go and immerse yourself in the auditory pleasure that is every single rehearsal that they do for the next Christmas concert because you love that so much at the school. That's, Do not remind me of that. That's my solution to this. This was something that just gave me great joy is to watch gave. my pride and joy. Gave Past tense, I think it's time to move on because... I have no choice unless I pull Megan out, and I don't want to do that to her. No, because you're holding her back, and you can give her little tips at home maybe, but I think you're paying this teacher to teach, and I think that person needs space to do it, and you can find other things that spark joy. Like what? To be determined. We'll brainstorm. Maybe people can tweet at you, at CookiesJar1988 with solutions. Buying vacuum cleaners, for example. You could do that weekly, since you already do. I can start bothering the people at Ron DeSantis' office every day, all day. Well, we want to have a good relationship with the office, though. So let's pick someone else. Like, 
I don't know, the White House. Corinne Jean-Pierre, let's try her every day. Let's do that. When in doubt, contact KJP. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. See you on Kennedy Tonight, FBN, and have a great evening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.